This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 331st episode, we have a bunch of news, including what I am calling clearing the name of Oviraptor. Oh, I see. Because it's not an egg thief. Exactly. Which we've sort of known for a while, but there's a bunch more evidence to go into, which is fascinating. That also spills over into the fun fact. But it will always have the name that means egg thief. It will, yeah. That's an unfortunate relic of history. But also a good reminder that things change. Mm -hmm. And just because something was named one thing doesn't mean that it has to be defined by that forever. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Nquabasaurus. Also pronounced Nquabasaurus. Yeah, it's in a language that has clicks as part of the consonant sounds, which is really difficult for us. But we're, we're doing our best. <laughs> Hopefully that sounded good. I think Sabrina did a good job, better than I could do. <laughs> As somebody who doesn't speak the language. <laughs> yes. But it's a cool name. It is. And the authors generously sort of defined it in a way that's easy for people that speak Latin-based languages because they spelled it in, and sort of gave a pronunciation guide in their spelling in making it enquebasaurus in case you can't do clicks easily. So that's nice at least for us. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, real quickly, want to thank some of our patrons. This week, we have two new patrons to thank. We have Jonah, who has a birthday coming up. So happy upcoming birthday, Jonah. And we have Ben at Jurassic Site B, who we did an interview with on the Jurassic Park podcast recently, talking about the beginning of the Jurassic Park novel since it just passed its 30th anniversary. So thank you both very much for joining. Yeah, and welcome. And rounding out our 10 shout outs for the episode, we've got Kaylin, Neil Ovenator, The Georges Family, Daniel McGill, Gabe, Dino Mo, Rhinosaurus, and Remy Rodriguez. Yeah, thank you so much for all your support. We really appreciate it. And, and we always say you're why we can keep this show going. Yeah, absolutely. And we love our growing dinosaur community. So if anybody else wants to join, then go to our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. You too could get a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> so jumping into the news, kicking off our Oviraptorid discussion, we've got an article by Shundong B and others and published in Science Bulletin. I say published in, but technically it's still in press. I usually like to wait until it's at least published online, but people have been talking about this for a long time, and it first came to our attention months ago, and it says that it's been corrected a couple times and peer-reviewed, so hopefully it's close enough that I don't have to retract most of what I'm saying here. <laughs> but even if I do, it's science, right? It, mm -hmm. it evolves over time. That can be even within the same paper. Oh, yeah. Things are always changing. So as Sabrina hinted at at the top of the show, Oviraptors were not the quote-unquote egg thieves in which you would assume based on their name. It's been known for a while that it's more likely that the oviraptors that were found around eggs weren't eating the eggs, but were instead brooding the eggs. The opposite. Yes. The opposite of stealing and eating was taking care of nurturing. <laughs> yeah. At the very minimum, people kind of assume they were protecting them in some way, whether or not they were brooding them. It appears that they were situated very directly above them which is what you would do if you were protecting something. They're not really off to the side as if their mouth is just eating on it. So, yeah, it's probable. We've known for a long time it's probable that oviraptors were not egg thieves, but were probably being parents of the eggs. 
this has come to light because there are several examples of oviraptorids fossilized over what appear to be their nests, and again, not off to the side. But we also have a fossilized oviraptorid with a pair of fossilized eggs in its pelvis. I think this one, I think the first example of that was around 2005, if I remember right. One interesting thing about it is it showed that it appears oviraptors had two ovaries mm -hmm. because it has two eggs inside it, and that's usually how that happens. We don't have any soft tissue preserved to the point where we can tell definitively that it definitely had two ovaries, but we have seen other hints at maybe ovarian tissue fossilized over the last couple of years, so it's possible we could see that eventually. That'd be cool. Yeah, and one important thing about that oviraptor that had the fossilized eggs preserved in its pelvis is they match the same shape and general structure as the eggs that we've seen other oviraptorids sitting on top of. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you've seen the eggs inside the animal and then you've seen it sitting on top of similar looking eggs, it's a good chance that it's its own eggs, right? Yep. It, it wasn't smuggling eggs through its ovaries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like stashing them for a later treat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have a crop back there. That's only for laying. This is true. So... Jumping ahead to the new specimen, for the fun fact, I'm going to do a little more of the history mm -hmm. because it's really interesting and there's lots of fun little twists to it. But the new specimen is an oviraptorid, and unfortunately, I can't really be more specific than that. We know it was an oviraptorid based on the bones that were found, but we can't tell specifically which genus or let alone species it came from. But that means, you know, there's a lot of things in common with oviraptorids. They've generally got those tall crests on their head. They're pretty bird-looking. They've got a long tail, presumably with a tail fan at the end of it, feathered, probably feathered on their wing-like arms. At least they're probably a little bit wing-like with having feathers on them, presumably for brooding and maybe on their legs. Whenever I imagine this, I imagine you, Sabrina, when we went to that dinosaur exhibit where you could try on an oviraptor, I think it was a gigantoraptor or something, outfit, mm -hmm. and you could like pretend you, you put were on brooding the eggs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was fun. This is what I always imagine is you squatting on eggs with <laughs> wearing the feathers. I'm pretty sure the oviraptor had looked different from me. <laughs> yeah. But I've never seen an oviraptor do it. I've only seen you do it in person. So it's <laughs> more, it stands out more in my memory. But yeah, unfortunately, we don't know which exact oviraptorid it is. And if you're really curious, the specimen number is LDNHMF2008. That's a long specimen name. Yeah, I think it's mostly the museum name, which is the land with an E at the end, Museum of Natural History, which Googling gave zero results. Hmm. So I'm not sure what that is. Hopefully I'll figure it out someday. But for now... It's a really good specimen that's at a museum somewhere in China, specifically in Hebei province. So it's near Beijing. The fossil itself, though, was found in the Nanshang Formation, which is Maastrichtian in age, similar to the Namekt Formation in Mongolia, but only really similar in time. It might be as good to compare it to like the Hell Creek Formation in the U.S. because it's really far southeast of Mongolia, like well over a thousand miles away. It's actually closer to the Philippines than it is to Mongolia. So yeah, we're not we're not talking about like, oh, this is basically the same formation as Namekt. Definitely a different formation. But it was probably at the very end of the Cretaceous, maybe even later than the Namekt formation, within about a million years of the mass extinction event. So very late oviraptorid. The find itself not only contains the adult oviraptorid, but it includes a clutch of, quote, at least 24 eggs preserved immediately beneath and in extremely close proximity to the adult skeleton with little to no intervening sedimentary matrix, end quote. That's a lot of eggs. It is, it is a lot of eggs. I think it's the most eggs that have ever been found underneath an oviraptorid. From what I remember, it was like 6 to 18 or maybe 20 was the range for other ones. Yeah, it's a lot of eggs. And remember, just like mammals, they only have two ovaries. Mm -hmm. So even if they were laying two eggs every single day, which is about as as many as they could, that's almost two weeks of nonstop laying oh double gosh. eggs. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy that yeah. goes into all those eggs because they're big eggs. Did the authors look into whether or not these eggs all came from one dinosaur? 
Yeah, I mean, they can't be sure about that, right? Like maybe there were multiple individuals laying eggs in this nest and just one individual was on top of it. Mm -hmm. But they do know that some of the eggs were different ages. So Okay, so it does seem like a likely progression. Yeah, you could presume at least that some of the eggs were from the same individual, given they're in the same nest and they're different ages, that would make sense. But that's a good point. You can't be sure because maybe they did share a nest. I don't think we know of, I should, I bet there is some animal that shares an actual nest, but usually they would share like an area. A nesting site more than a nest. Yeah, exactly. Like a series of nests. So, but it, it could happen, I suppose. The clutch is relatively big. It's about 78 centimeters or about two and a half feet in diameter. So that kind of gives you the idea about how big it is. Maybe that's like manhole cover or a little bit (laughs) bigger. Just so many eggs. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the outer edge of the nest. Mm -hmm. The eggs are pretty long, so like they stick inwards from that. And there's only a gap in the middle that's roughly a foot or I think it was like 20 something centimeters wide for the bird dinosaur to sit down in the middle of and put its feet in while it's trying to brood all these eggs around it because it's basically a full circle around the dinosaur. I'm, now I'm picturing Big Bird in his nest because that's a round, a large round nest. There's been You've seen Big Bird in a nest? Oh, yeah. I don't remember Big Bird's nest. Wait, I don't know about lately, but when I was watching Sesame Street, Big Bird was often in his nest. Was it in a tree? Was it like one of those, it was like made out of twigs and stuff? Yeah, I don't think he was in a tree because he was too big. But it was, yeah, it looked very nesty. That's interesting. Twiggy. I guess that's our, our bias from looking at modern birds. Like, of course, they all birds make nests out of twigs. <laughs> but really, birds that are on the ground don't usually do that. I mean, you might make a mound or something. Right. Yeah. Interesting. This one is not as big as a big bird nest. Two and a half feet would not be big enough for a big bird. <laughs> But each egg is very large. They're about 22 centimeters long and about nine centimeters across, which makes it a little bit bigger than a can of spray paint, I think is a pretty good analogy for the size and shape of it. A little more rounded on the end. Mm-hmm. Like if you stuck some rounded bits onto the end of a can of spray paint, it gives you a pretty good idea about how big these eggs were. How big was the adult oviraptorid? Do we know? I don't know exactly. We didn't find the entire animal. but in their diagram of it, they basically have its chest through its hips are like that diameter of the nest. And then you've got the tail and the head sticking out of the ends. So a little bit less than a meter, say, for the diameter of it. And then maybe a little bit less than a meter of tail and a little bit less than a meter of head. So two to three meters in length, under 10 feet. It's not a huge individual, but not small. I'd say it's fairly typical of an oviraptorid. I was just thinking the size of the dinosaur compared to the egg it was laying. Yeah, these are definitely on the larger ratio. Well, actually, I shouldn't say they're on the larger ratio because we talked about the kiwi bird Mm -hmm. and (laughs) that egg takes up like its whole abdomen. It's basically, looking at the picture, the egg is shorter than its femur, probably even shorter than its pubis. So it's like, it looks like it could easily fit an egg inside its body without too much difficulty. The two eggs are still smaller than like a baby inside a human. Hmm. It's not anything too crazy. But if it's laying two of these every single day, yep, that's it's kind a of a lot. different story. Although these are a lot more streamlined than a baby is because <laughs> they're very long and narrow, which would have made it easier to lay. Now I'm mostly thinking that dinosaur must have been really hungry. Yeah, and like probably cr- having weird cravings because it needs a lot of calcium for all those eggs. It's mm-hmm. a lot of egg material to make because they're not thin either. I think they were about half a millimeter thick times all that surface area of those eggs. It's a lot of egg material to lay. Might have been a little bit prone to osteoporosis after laying all those eggs. (laughs) Hopefully it had some good medullary bone or something to draw from. Even though they couldn't tell which species or genus the adult was, they did see enough of the details in the egg to assign the eggs to an oo genus and they referred it to macroulithus yautunensis which is a pretty popular one macro i never know if it's supposed to be macroulithus or macrolithus because mm. <laughs> it's it's like oolithus combined with macro anyway but it's named because it's large yeah they're big <laughs> 
and pretty narrow, but long, elongate in general. Of the 24 eggs that were preserved and fossilized, seven of the eggs have embryos inside of them. Nice. And four of those are identifiable with fossilized bones. It's a really great find. We very rarely find embryos at all. Finding four from one single nest is pretty astonishing. Mm-hmm. There are really seven, but four especially good ones. This is a first for an oviraptor in a brooding position over eggs. <laughs> so we talked a little bit on the Discord server about how like you can come up with a first for most finds, you know, if you make it specific enough. We have oviraptor embryos before. We have oviraptors sitting on eggs before. We have oviraptors sitting on eggs that we were pretty confident were oviraptor eggs based on that pair that were in a pelvis. But we hadn't had an oviraptor that was sitting on a nest with an embryo inside one of those eggs at the same time. There we go. So if anybody was still thinking that there was a reason to think that oviraptors were sitting on some other nest or, you know, whatever <laughs> explanation there could be for maybe they were still egg-eating specialists based on the given fossils, this is just one more nail in that coffin, I guess. Another cool thing that the researchers did was they used a paleothermometer to check the egg temperatures. Paleothermometers are so cool. What you do is you take the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16. Oxygen 18 is much more rare than oxygen 16. It's only about 0.2% of the oxygen on Earth. And what happens is there's a different ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 inside an animal's body, <laughs> depending on the temperature of the animal when that body material is formed. Oh, I see. So you work backwards to figure out the temperature then of the animal at th that moment in time. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's preserved throughout millions and millions of years, which is why they call it a paleothermometer, because you can use paleontology to figure out the temperature way back in the day. It's similar to carbon-14 in a way. It's just another way to use isotopes to figure out cool stuff about animals that are long gone. So the oxygen-18 isotope ratio in the shell tells the temperature of the mama oviraptorid because the shell forms inside mm -hmm. the mama oviraptorid. And then that's preserved forever. It doesn't change later on once it's laid, depending on the temperature it is, it's fixed. But the isotope of the embryo's bones show the embryo's temperatures because once it's out of the mama's body, it's still absorbing, you know, oxygen is still permeating through the eggshell. It's air permeable, so it's not fixed with that same ratio as it was inside the mama oviraptorid. Mm -hmm. It can in interact with the environment once it's out. And so you get to see two things at the same time. You get to see the temperature that the eggshell formed at and the temperature that the embryo is forming at. And what they were really interested in was the temperature of the embryo. And they found that the temperatures were about 30 to 38 degrees Celsius or 86 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit for the range of eggs because some of them were warmer and some of them were cooler than others. That seems like a big range. It is a pretty big range, but it's pretty common for brooding birds today. They're right in that 30 to 38 C range. Apparently, other reptiles are a little bit lower in the 26 to 32 degrees Celsius range. Hmm. So basically, they didn't really want to know exactly what temperature they were, what like an optimum was or anything like that. They just wanted to know, were they doing a reptile-like brooding? If they were doing brooding, were they not brooding at all? Did it seem like they were just the temperature of the environment? Or were they brooding like birds? And the result is, it looked like they were sitting on the nest just like birds do and keeping them at like a bird temperature and again, I guess this is another piece of evidence as well, that oviraptorids at least had a body temperature analogous to endothermic or warm-blooded animals because otherwise these eggs wouldn't have been so warm. And then they were probably pretty active. Yes, exactly. This is also important because there's another theory that had been floated that the oviraptors had died while guarding or laying their eggs. Like maybe one of the nests I mentioned had like six eggs in it and this one has way more eggs in it, mm -hmm. people had said, well, we know that there are nests of oviraptor. We've seen them without the oviraptor on top of them of larger nests. And maybe 
the reason that we're finding smaller nests with an oviraptor fossilized on top of it, and then we find empty nests without the oviraptor on top of it with more eggs, is because they lay the eggs and then they bail out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they're doing that, then you would expect to never find an oviraptor on top of a nest with 20 plus eggs. Right. But this one does have 20 plus eggs. And on top of that, it clearly wasn't just laying the eggs because the eggs show that they have been incubated after getting out of the body. Mm-hmm because some of them have been in that nest for a while and they wouldn't have been at that higher temperature if there wasn't a mama sitting on them. So it kind of shows that they did stick around after laying the eggs. And there's so many reasons why we could have found these nests without an oviraptor brooding over them. It could be like, you know, maybe there was, it got attacked or maybe oh, yeah. it had to leave for some reason and couldn't make its way back. Or it starved to death on the nest and something ate it. I don't know. Yeah, just preservation bias because a lot of times the same sediment that preserves a egg might not preserve the dinosaur sitting on top of the egg. Mm-hmm. Or like you said, maybe it just got washed away, you know, by a flood or who knows what. Whatever ended up burying the eggs could have easily removed the oviraptor that was sitting on top from them. Especially if there aren't embryos in them, then who knows? Something might have eaten those embryos too. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the embryos, I mentioned they were at different stages, and that means the embryos wouldn't have hatched at the same time. So this is kind of an important distinction, something I very rarely think about because I'm so mammal-focused that I don't think about how animals that lay eggs over a series of days deal with their parental issues of eggs hatching on different days. But some modern animals, like many birds, have a mechanism to delay development of eggs laid earlier so that they all hatch around the same time. Oh, interesting. I think we talked about chickens or something doing this, where basically you lay one egg a day, because modern birds only have one ovary. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to lay, say, six eggs and then try to raise them into little baby chickens, they have to lay them one a day. And then once they're all laid there, they sit on them, and then they all start incubating from that point. The one that's laid on day one isn't developing until the one that's laid on day six because they literally wait to incubate them, and that incubation is what triggers them to start developing. Well, it's much easier when they hatch at the same time versus what I was thinking briefly was some of them have hatched and they're they're around needing food, and then meanwhile the parent is still brooding over the eggs that haven't hatched. That would be too difficult. Yeah, and it also like I think about like mother ducks, mm-hmm. you know, where they're walking and they've got all the little ducklings following behind them. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you want to teach the oldest one, how to walk around and whatever, but you've still got some ducklings still in the nest that can't forage out on their own. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier if they're all the same exact size. And you really do see that with ducklings. Like they're literally little carbon copies of each other. Yeah. <laughs> they're all exactly the same. So it's really convenient for birds, especially since they only have the one ovary. It takes twice as long to make the same number of eggs. So there's always this question of when did that split happen from bird-like dinosaurs into birds? When did it become a bird feature or was it a dinosaur feature that birds inherited? In this case, it looks like oviraptor had still had quite a few features that were non-avian dinosaur features way at the end of the Cretaceous. They hadn't evolved into anything like modern birds in terms of how they laid their eggs or anything. I guess they were brooding though, so that makes them more like modern birds. There is one trick that might have helped though, and that's The nests are so big that some of the eggs are farther away from the body than other eggs. And it appears that at least some of the eggs that were farther away were laid first because they're kind of beneath some of the other eggs. So they're not in as direct contact with the brooding parent Mm -hmm. as the ones that were laid later. And that might have helped even things out a little bit if you think a higher temperature helps them develop faster. So you got the ones that are laid last that are getting the highest temperature because they're on top of the other eggs or closer to the mama or daddy (laughs) oviraptorid. So maybe that helped even it out a little bit. But based on the ones that we can see, it seems like the ones that were closest were still developing maybe a little bit faster, or at least the warmer ones were developing faster. So there would have been some asynchronous hatching definitely happening here. Mm -hmm. But they would have kept them closer together. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they just had some other mechanism so they didn't care so much which ones hatched first. If 
they say they develop really slow if it takes them a year and they're all in the nest together for a year mm -hmm. does it matter if one's ready a day before maybe by that point there's enough margin of error in individual development that it doesn't really matter a couple days here or there yeah. because modern birds grow really really fast compared to a lot of dinosaurs where they're trying to get out of the nest and flying within a month or two whereas dinosaurs might not have been that quick i wonder too if there was some sort of expectation like not all 24 of these eggs are going to hatch because that's a lot of eggs that is a lot of eggs. That would be a lot of parenting to do for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> and it, it kind of makes you think too, because a lot of these animals that lay 20 plus eggs aren't really doing the parental care thing mm -hmm. because they're taking the strategy of quantity over quality. Right. Like sea turtles lay 100 eggs, plant them in the sand, and then take off and hope some of them make it into the water later. Whereas- Is that why turtles are so heartless? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I guess. I guess compared to like albatross where they just lay the one egg and then raise it or the, the penguins that everybody loves so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe dinosaurs are friendlier than turtles. The debate continues. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I should also mention they did some histology. I always like to point it out when they do that. They did it both on the eggshells, but also on the humerus and gastralium, which is a single belly rib in air quotes. Of the adult, it's that those bones that are basically on like the chest to belly of some dinosaurs. And I think they might have chosen that because that chest is where a lot of birds incubate their eggs. They press their gastralia, basically, you know, they puff out their wings and their feathers and stuff and they kind of nestle down <laughs> those eggs into their feathers on their chest and stuff. And they found that both of them had about nine lags, so it was at least nine years old, and it also had an EFS, which means that it was basically done growing. So this was an adult oviraptorid that was sitting on the nest. But really interestingly, they didn't find any medullary bone, so the mm. adult may have been a male. Could have been a penguin kind of situation. It very well could have been. Maybe laying all those eggs was incredibly strenuous mm -hmm. <laughs> on and the female oviraptorid. The female had to go eat. <laughs> yep. So the male takes over. It yeah, very well could be. They did point out, though, medullary bone is variable, so they're unsure if it's a male or female. We don't have any examples of like an unequivocal male or female dinosaur anywhere. Yeah. But I do like the story. I like the thinking male. they're like penguins. Yeah. And it is like our fun fact about dinosaurs potentially being monogamous like birds. And if that was the case, the male might guard the nest if it's a pair-bonded set of oviraptorids. Mm -hmm. The male would have a lot of interest in making sure that its young made it to adulthood compared with if they were behaving in a polygamous fashion, then the males tend not to stick around as much. So I think that's pretty cool. Another nice detail is the posture of the oviraptorid on this nest matches the two other oviraptorid nests where it's an oviraptorid on top of what presumably are oviraptorid eggs. So there's a Chidipati and Nemectomaya, which are basically in the exact same sort of position above their nests. And since we're very confident at this point that this oviraptorid was brooding these eggs, we can be pretty confident that those were as well because they're sitting in such a similar way. Mm -hmm. They're basically down low to the nest. They've got their arms out and sort of to their sides. So if you imagine there were feathers sticking out from them, or even if there weren't, they're making contact with those eggs with their arms, and then their legs and their butt and tail are sort of like over some of the other eggs. And then they've got their chest basically on the eggs in the front of the nest. Mm -hmm. So they're very much like in the middle, right on top of everything. And like I said, there's like almost no sandstone matrix in between the bones and the eggs. So it was really pressed up close against those eggs. Right. It's got to keep them warm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it really looks like that's what they were trying to do. So there you go. That's It's kind of another piece of evidence that oviraptorids were good parents raising eggs, not, you know, egg thieves sneaking around and eating other unless, people's eggs. Unless after laying all those eggs, they really needed to eat and... You know, you go out real quick and you find an easy snack in another nest. That is possible. Some animals do eat their own eggs, too, from time to time. Mm. So it, it could happen. But it wasn't the primary <laughs> right, reason right. that all these oviraptorids have been found with I mean, nests. There's no evidence for this either. 
Yeah. <laughs> at least as far as I know. But we'll talk more. I'm going to talk a little more about it in the fun fact, at least the history of other discoveries and where the name Overaptor came from. And actually the very first mention of it, he was a little bit speculative about like this name might be really misleading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully not, but it might be. And then it was. Yep. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And real quick, before I let you get into all your news items, I got one more. Okay. (laughs) It's about the second specimen of Diamantinosaurus, which was found in Australia. Nice. That is a sauropod, in case you forget. It was published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society by Stephen Porapat, or as we like to call him, (laughs) Sauropat, and others. And... Basically, it, yeah, it's a it's a second specimen. It's a titanosaur that was found in the Winton Formation. Does that mean that's what Diamantinosaurus is in general? Relatively close to the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum, if you're familiar. And I think we might have seen this when we toured the museum. Mm-hmm. They had a few sauropods that they were preparing, and I know one of them was a head and like a series of neck vertebrae sticking out of it. And this one is basically that. It's the end of a head, including the brain case. So basically near where it attaches to the neck vertebrae. It doesn't have the whole snout in the front of the head, but it does have some of the back of the head. And also several vertebrae, which is really useful because the holotype doesn't have any skull or vertebrae. Does this specimen have a nickname? Yes, I'm sure, because it's from Australia, but I don't know what it is. Mm, Okay, (laughs) because I would know based on the nickname whether or not we saw it. Yeah, they didn't put, they don't usually put nicknames into the scientific papers. That's a good point. And I didn't see this published really elsewhere on the interwebs, so there weren't things to link it to where people were making little comments about it. But the coolest thing about it, maybe, is how it affects the Titanosaur family tree, because Diamantinosaurus appears in a group with Savannosaurus, which at first you'd think, oh, that must be in Africa because Savannah. But no, that's another titanosaur from the outback of Australia, Mm -hmm. which they now put in a group called Diamantinosauria. However, this also includes Sarmientosaurus. Oh, really? Which is from Argentina. 
It's the Eeyore one. <laughs> yeah. That's how a lot of people describe it. It's got the droopy head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorite depictions of a sauropod, all derpy. <laughs> does Diamantinosaurus, does the head droop? I it I think so. I don't know. I mean, we don't have the whole head, I don't think. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many details we have on that. But it is definitely a connection between dinosaurs like Sarmientosaurus from South America and Australian Titanosaurs. And it probably means that Titanosaurs made it across Antarctica, likely around the middle to late Cretaceous, very roughly 100 million years ago-ish, if they moved similar to those ages of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs sure like to move around. Yeah. But maybe even more interestingly, the authors point out that Rabachisaurids don't appear to make it to Australia in the fossil record. Hmm. So maybe there was something about those sauropods where they couldn't handle that dispersal across Antarctica, whereas the Diamantinosaurians could. Yeah, could be something diet related, could be a lot of things. Yeah, it really could be a lot of things. I mean, Antarctica wasn't nearly as cold then as it is now. It was quite a bit farther from the poles and then the earth in general was warmer. There weren't ice caps, all that kind of stuff. So don't imagine today's Antarctica because there would be a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. why animals couldn't make it across that. But in general, the high latitudes, meaning anywhere near the poles, is more difficult for animals to deal with because there are shorter days. You can deal with changes in vegetation because of that, because there's lower light in the winter at least. And yeah, so Rabakisaurids looks like they might not have made it to Australia, but these Diamantinosaurians did. Cool. Yeah. Yay, sauropod news. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got some other news here. This first part isn't really new news, but more it's a new story that gave more context on a previous news item. Mm-hmm. In Montana, Ron Giesler and a group of students found a Spherotholus bucolse, it's a pachycephalosaur skull, while they were out in the field. And this happened last July. And Carrie Woodruff was the lead author on a paper about it that came out in February. And we talked about that paper actually before it was published when we covered his SVP talk in episode 207. So you can hear the more scientific details there. But this story is about how the skull was found. So Ron's the program director for Adventure 360, and they're all about unique learning experiences. So he was out there with students, and he said he saw a bone slightly sticking out of the ground, and he could tell it was something different. And this skull is about the size of the palm of a hand. And apparently this skull is the 22nd specimen for the species. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. So this finding helped show Bucolce to be a valid species. And there's two other species. There's Goodwin-I and Edmontonensis. So the skull will be at the Burke Museum, and they're going to do more research, or they might put it on display. That Burke Museum is getting quite a collection going. Mm-hmm. The next, we got an update that the Utah Raptor State Park is happening. Ooh. Yeah. The governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, signed the bill, and this bill puts aside $37 million to make Utah Raptor State Park as well as Lost Creek State Park. Wow. I didn't realize it was that expensive to make a park. Yeah, me either. Now I can see why there is any argument at all about it. I always figured, like, why not make it a state park? But I guess if it's tens of millions of dollars, you got to find it in the budget. It must be for, like, paying for park rangers and trails and parking lots and things like that. Maintenance and even maybe preserving the fossils to some extent. Yeah, that could be. Or, like, visitor center. So I guess that could include some kind of fossil location. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So in the Utah Raptor State Park, they're going to be preserving the quarry where Utah Raptor was found. Nice. It's going to be about 15 miles north of Moab, Utah. And then Lost Creek State Park, I looked it up, it's going to be for Morgan County's Lost Creek Reservoir, and that's a place where people fish and boat. It looks like it has nothing to do with dinosaurs. It's also good to have, though. Mm -hmm. Utah, man, I see these ads for Utah and how it's like, come here, look at all the outdoor stuff to do. They're really living up to that name. Oh, yeah, (laughs) they have some great parks and national monuments. and Yeah, we've only been through the northern part of the state by Salt Lake City. we Going down to Moab would be nice, Mm -hmm. seeing some of these other sites. And St. George, there's tons of spots in Utah. Oh, yeah. Next in Montville, Connecticut, the dinosaur place in Nature's Art Village recently reopened with COVID-19 safety measures. And it's this 
60-acre mostly outdoor adventure park. It sounds pretty epic. So they have a lot of nature trails that are now full of life-size dinosaurs. And they also have a dinosaur-themed maze. They've got two caves with dinosaurs in it and then a playground with a T-Rex tower. (laughs) It sounds like it's a seasonal place that's only open in the warm months. But good place to go if you're looking for some outdoor activities. It does make sense. It's hard to run outdoor exhibits in Connecticut in the winter, I'm sure. Yeah. Even if you could, you might not get a lot of visitors. Real quick, I have an update from one of our patrons who works at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History and was sharing one of their outdoor exhibits that they have. You talked about that in an early episode, how they have their outdoor dinosaur sculptures on display permanently now. It's not a temporary exhibit anymore. Mm -hmm. But they do have a new temporary exhibit called Dinorama Miniatures Through the Mesozoic. Now they're getting more dinosaur stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So this one is only going to be there until April 25th, presumably because the space that it's in is used as a butterfly pavilion. Oh, we've been there for the butterflies. Yeah, during butterfly season. That's pretty cool when you walk in and a bunch of butterflies land on you. Exactly. So that starts after Memorial Day. Mm. which is in May. Mm-hmm. And this is open until April 25th. I'm just guessing they have some extra oh, yeah. time to get the to chrysalises get in there and all that stuff. Yeah, clean it up. So the temporary dinorama is a diorama, <laughs> if you couldn't guess from the portmanteau. And it is a collection of mini landscapes. So there's 200 figurines, mostly dinosaurs, but there's other Mesozoic stuff too, like pterosaurs and marine reptiles. When they set it up, they used heat guns to adjust the positions <laughs> of the figurines, which is a really clever idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not news to people that do this kind of stuff, but it was news to me. <laughs> it makes me tempted with some of our little dinosaurs to try this. I did recognize that we have some of these dinosaur miniatures from like Safari oh, and I yeah? think the Carnegie collection and all that. Nice. Yeah. And they have lots of them in sets. So they've got like four or five Diplota kids and then they use the heat guns on the tails of the Diplodocids to make them look like they're swishing around like in the Walking with Dinosaurs documentary and stuff. But yeah, so they they adjusted some of the positions, they made some of them look more accurate, and then they made some of them interact as well. Like there's one that is eating another dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> but the one of the cool details is they're arranged chronologically. So as you walk through the space, you start at the beginning of the Mesozoic. And then by the time you get to the end, there's a big Chicxulub impactor there yeah. signifying the end of the exhibit. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. They say there are 52 species of dinosaurs, pterosaurs, marine reptiles, crocodilian ancestors, etc. So that's a lot. There's a lot to see in there. And in such a small space, too, they pack a lot more in in this little pavilion mm-hmm. than you can fit elsewhere because you know it's nice and miniature and you can get sets of sauropods together that way too. <laughs> so i think it looks really cool the pictures that they shared were very nice looking and if i were near santa barbara i would definitely check it out because mm-hmm. it looks pretty neat and it's going to be gone in a few weeks and it's a fun museum too yeah all right so back to connecticut <laughs> <laughs> after our, our santa barbara interlude yeah <laughs> I guess because this one's more outdoorsy than museum related. But the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection of Connecticut is holding a Sky's the Limit hiking challenge. It's something they do every year. I guess they've been doing it since 2015. And it's to promote hiking in the state parks and forests. And you go to 15 locations. And if you do that, you'll get a medallion and a certificate. If you go to all 20 locations in the challenge, you get a hand-carved hiking staff. And the reason I mention this is because one of the locations is Dinosaur State Park. Huh. Yeah. Which the exhibit center is currently closed. When it's open, you can see a fossil trackway and interactive exhibits and cast your own dinosaur footprint. But the grounds and the trails are still open. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they built a building around the tracks themselves. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't be able to see the tracks. But I guess you can walk around the building. You can be near them, yeah. There's probably some that are outside of the building, too, because I remember we heard about vandalism there Mm -hmm. that was outside of it. So you might be able to see a few tracks outside. That's cool. At first, I I thought you were saying there were 20 locations that were dinosaur related. Oh, that'd be cool. In Connecticut. But no. It was just one. (laughs) Not as far as I know. 
And the one that there is, you can't really see all of. <laughs> At the moment, it's temporary. <laughs> yeah. That is on our, our 2C list, though, Dinosaur State Park. with basic, I think that's their, like, if not the first Ubrantes tracks, those theropod tracks. Mm -hmm. It's definitely one of the first finds of them and a very large collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's a few places in Connecticut we want to see, like the Yale Peabody Museum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then moving back west, Washington State in the U.S., there's a woman who, there were a lot of news articles about this. The poor woman got stuck on top of a T-Rex statue at Granger Dinosaur Park. So she got stuck on it. How? Like a cat she, stuck in a tree? She climbed up and then she couldn't climb down. I guess once she was up, she realized she was afraid of heights. So she was trespassing? I don't know if she was trespassing. That was unclear. <laughs> <laughs> I was first when you said this I was imagining a T-Rex like you were saying the T-Rex jungle gym or these things where it's like T-Rex on the outside but it's got stairs on the inside mm -hmm. kind of thing but this this was just a regular T-Rex statue it's a concrete dinosaur statue which yeah. this dinosaur park it was created in 1993 to get more tourists to the area and at one point it had 30 of these statues which aren't still there but the T-Rex one is and so she climbed it that's why I'm not sure if you were allowed to climb or not I suspect not. Mm. You're usually not allowed to climb sculptures. So she called 911 and then fire crews came with a ladder to help her down. And at least one person took a picture because that picture <laughs> made its way to several outlets. <laughs> I'm sure she won't try that again. No. I hope she got a good picture while she was on the statue at least then. Yeah, but don't don't climb dinosaur sculptures. Yeah. If, if you want to climb a dinosaur, there are dinosaur themed attractions you can right. climb. Or playgrounds. Yes. <laughs> There's quite a few, actually. There's actually one near us. It's a sauropod. It's not a slide, was it? It was It was in a park, and it's you, the neck of a sauropod. It's like it's in sand or something. Yeah. And you can climb on that. I think they might have had a sculpture, too, like in the playground, which was climb climbing friendly. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to those, for sure. Dinosaurs are a little bit high off the ground. It would be scary if you got up on one. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Nkwebasaurus, which is also pronounced sometimes Nkwebasaurus. And that was a request from Ewan via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. I wonder if they just wanted to see how you pronounced it, if you used a click or not. <laughs> Maybe. We're trying it both ways. <laughs> Doing our best. <laughs> so it was a basal salurosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Eastern Cape Province in South Africa in the Kirkwood Formation. And it looks like a typical small theropod. It's small to medium in size. The type specimen was about 3 feet or 0.9 meters long, though it was probably longer since the caudal vertebrae is not complete, the tailbones. The type specimen was also a juvenile, so it might have grown more. It had these long hands with three fingers and a partially opposable thumb and a recurve claw and long slender feet with a very short fourth digit. It's not clear if it had feathers, but it might have been partially feathered based on other relatives having feathers. The type and only species is Nwebasaurus thwazi, and it was named by William de Klerk and others in 2000. The genus name means Nweba lizard. And the name comes from the Osa word Nweba, which is the local name for the area where the dinosaur was found. The species name Thwazai is also for lightning, so it means a lightning fast lizard. They found a nearly complete skeleton, including part of the skull, vertebrae, parts of the forelimbs, and hindlimbs. That's really good. Part of the skull alone is exciting. And then they've got all the limbs. And that's really great. Yeah. So the specimen's unofficially nicknamed Kirky, probably because it was found in the Kirkwood Formation. And it's the first Salurosaur found in Africa and the second carnivorous dinosaur found in South Africa. That was after Coelophysis rhodesianensis, which was named in 1969. Mm. Webasaurus was found to be herbivorous. So, this dinosaur helps show that herbivory evolved early on in Ornithomimosaurian evolution. I guess in addition to Therizinosaurus, which were also early Cretaceous Ornithomimosaurian herbivores. Yeah. 
there's plenty of strange dinosaurs out there. Yeah. So there were gastrolists found in the stomach region that were etched by stomach acids. And when it was first found, they thought, oh, that's unusual for a carnivore. But maybe that helped with digestion. Then in 2012, Jonah Chouanier and others further prepared the holotype of mm, Webasaurus and found new skeletal material. And they found it to be an herbivore instead of a carnivore. Some animals, including birds, oviraptorosaurs, and the ceratosaur, lemusaurus, which had no teeth, and some ornithomyosaurs, have been found with gastroliths. But the gastroliths in mm, Webasaurus were the right size and distributed in a way that the dinosaur probably had a gastric mill to help break down food. So the authors said that recent assessments of herbivorous characteristics in ornithomimosaurs and salurosaurs found that having a gastric mill, quote, allows confident inference of herbivory in extinct non-avian dinosaurs, end quote. So since it had a gastric mill, it's thought to be herbivorous. And it also helps that there was tooth reduction. There were fewer teeth in the jaws of mm, Webasaurus compared to other theropods. Yeah, with non-avian dinosaurs, certainly that often means herbivory, but not always. Yeah. Lots of predators with beaks. Mm. Webasaurus tooth crowns were similar to those of derived parvicursorine alvarosauroids, and it could be that the two types of dinosaurs had the same strategy for eating. There are also many similarities anatomically with alvarosauroidea. They have similar forelimbs and hindlimbs and simplified teeth for example, but the 2012 phylogenetic analysis shows mm, Webasaurus to be Ornithomimosauria, but it would help to have more fossils. Interestingly, Ornithomimosaurs progressively lost teeth over time as they evolved. Mm, Webasaurus had small, conical, and unserrated maxillary teeth, at least four. There's no teeth in the back of the maxilla, so it's the same as the Ornithomimosaur Pelicanimus, and this is consistent with data that suggests a loss of teeth in ornithomimosaurs went from back to front. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I suppose a lot of dinosaurs with few teeth have them only in the front, uh, but some of them have them only in the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dinosaurs have everything. It just depends what they're using the teeth for. So there could be a transitional stage for both mm, Webasaurus and Pelicanimus where they don't need teeth in the back to eat, but then they still had some front teeth. The teeth of mm, Webasaurus were pretty far forward, procumbent, but that could be due to diagenetic factors, a change in sediments. However, in other theropods with shifts in tooth morphology, this procumbency, the far forward, is a common occurrence. Mm. Webasaurus is the most basal member of Ornithomimosaurium, one of the most basal clades of Salurosauria. And it helps show that basal salurosaurs were in Gondwana 50 million years earlier than previously thought, and that salurosaurians may have been globally distributed early in their evolution. So, mm, Webasaurus was found by William de Klerk and Callum Ross in July 1996 during a joint expedition with Grahamstown Albany Museum and State University of New York Stony Brook. In 2008, Catherine Forrester and others said there was a second theropod taxon referenced in the 2000 paper, the original paper that they published about it, but it was an isolated left femur and too incomplete to name as a new taxon. William de Klerk and Callum Ross saw fragments of fossils scattered on a sandstone slope when they first found the dinosaur, and when they followed the trail, they found a shin bone, which was attached to a foot bone, and they used a paintbrush to brush off the dirt, and then they saw the rest was embedded in rock. You know, the, the song I learned as a kid told me that the shin bone is connected to the ankle bone and the ankle bone is connected to the foot bone. Uh-oh. But I, I guess they're just skipping over the ankle bone. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Maybe they're including that as part of the, part of the foot bones. It was all together. <laughs> anyway, the day they found it, they were kind of rushed because Ross was flying back to New York the next day. So they went to Grahamstown to get plaster of Paris and coat the fossil and then... Eventually, they prepared the fossil in the lab and did their CT scans. Nice. And our fun fact of the day is that it took 70 years for Oviraptor to have its reputation cleared from <laughs> egg thief to a good parent. <laughs> 
So as a quick history, just to explain where that 70-year number comes from, in 1923, the famous holotype of Oviraptor was collected in Mongolia. The next year, Osborne officially named it Oviraptor, and that's because he thought Oviraptor was eating a nest of eggs. We presumed at the time that the eggs were from a protoceratops, thus the full name of Oviraptor is Oviraptor phyloceratops, hmm. meaning lover of ceratopsian or in this case, lover of ceratopsian eggs. <laughs> Osborne did note, though, in the etymology section of the paper, right after saying, I'm naming it Oviraptor, that the name, quote, may entirely mislead us as to its feeding habits and belie its character, end quote. So he knew, but he still did it. Yes. Well, he it was his best guess. Mm -hmm. And then he's saying, but I might be slandering the good name of Oviraptor. <laughs> And belie Oviraptor's character, Osborne did. Because <laughs> <laughs> over the next 70 years, lots of nests featuring long skinny eggs were found around the Gobi Desert. Most of them were defined partly by being at least twice as long as they were wide. They're shaped just like a cylindrical capsule or pill. Or like I said earlier, kind of like if you take a spray paint can and add little rounded bits to the end, you get the same general shape. But if you look closely at one end, it is slightly more tapered than the other because that's how eggs work. It's nice if they're a little pointier on the mama. The Ua genus Elongatulithus was named in 1975. That's one of the types of eggs that we think were likely from oviraptorids, or at least we think that now. There's also Macrolithus, like we talked about earlier with that oviraptorid, kind of a similar long skinny shape. And those are both different oogenuses or oogenuses. And just like how dinosaurs have a genus and a species, so do oogenus. Would it be oogenera as the plural? That's true, yes, oogenera. So as a dinosaur example, the genus and species of protoceratops are protoceratops and andrewsi. But as an egg example, we've got elongatulithus and also andrewsi. <laughs> it's not a coincidence that both Protoceratops and Elongatulithus end in Andrew's eye. That's because most people considered Elongatulithus to be from Protoceratops Andrew's eye. So they chose the same species name. You're allowed to have the same species name, just not the same genus name, because mm -hmm. that's just the rule. <laughs> Still, in 1975, most people thought Oviraptor was eating Protoceratops eggs which was when Elongatulithus andrewsi was named. So this is now 51 to 52 years after Oviraptor was named. We, th we still thought it was eating these Protoceratops eggs. Wow. By 1991, so maybe 16-ish years later, maybe a little bit earlier, some people started to question if Protoceratops was in fact the real parent of Elongatulithus and Macroulithus and some of these other long skinny eggs. And that's because the eggs look suspiciously like other theropod eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so we had started to figure out some of the details about when you look at the egg, when you cut them and you see the different layers, as well as the bumps on the outside and some of the other details, which dinosaur families have different characteristics. There's some consistency between the groups. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until Mark Norell et al. in 1994 described the first elongatulithid egg, probably elongatulithus, with an embryo inside that we really figured out for sure that this long skinny egg belonged to an oviraptorid. And that's because that embryo inside it was clearly an oviraptorid. That explains why growing up, I always learned that oviraptor was mislabeled. Yeah. Had a bad reputation, had, a, had the wrong reputation. Yeah, if you're reading books after 1994, you would get that. My books were mixed, but maybe I had older books <laughs> because I remember seeing that it's an egg thief. I think it. some of these things persist in books a little bit longer than they persist in peer-reviewed journals since books take longer to publish. Norell at the time said, quote, our evidence suggests that the holotype of Oviraptor phyloceratops perished not while feeding on these eggs, but perhaps while incubating or protecting this clutch of eggs, end quote. So that was his effort to clear the name of Oviraptor. And in 1994, that's exactly 70 years after Oviraptor had been named. So that's how long, <laughs> at least in the literature, most people were assuming Oviraptor was eating Protoceratops eggs. 
that paper by Norell, which was published in Science Magazine on the 4th of November, 1994, also has co-authors, I should say, included other interesting details like a warning about using egg associations in a fauna to identify the parents. Hmm. You can, once you look at the details, you can really see why Oviraptor got this bad rap. So the early trips to the Flaming Cliffs in Mongolia recovered a lot of individuals, and by individuals, I mean like fossilized dinosaurs. There were over a hundred protoceratops, but only two velociraptor, one sauroornithoides, and one oviraptor. Oh, I see. But about half of the eggs that were found on those trips were Elonga tulithid. So the logic was the most common egg must match the most common animal. Oh, no, but you don't know what you don't know. And the absence of fossils doesn't mean... <laughs> yes, there could certainly be a preservation bias. And that was definitely the case. That that logical assumption or presumably logical assumption was totally flawed and turned out not to be the case. Also, even though that article solved one riddle with the oviraptorid embryo, it created a new one. <laughs> That's because, quote... Two embryo-sized skulls of dromaeosaurids, similar to that of Velociraptor, were also recovered in the nest, end mm. quote. And we have no idea what Velociraptor embryos were doing mixed in with Oviraptor embryos in the same nest. Sneak attack. It could be. It could be that there were little sneaky <laughs> Velociraptors that were going in and trying to eat eggs. Clever girl. <laughs> It's also possible that the dromaeosaurs pulled a cuckoo bird and snuck their eggs into the nest and then hoped that the oviraptor would raise these dromaeosaurs as their own. You just wouldn't notice. Potentially with the dromaeosaurs eventually eating the oviraptors they're being raised with. Oh, it's <laughs> like a, a darker version of the ugly duckling story. I'm not, I'm not familiar. What's that story? It's where a goose egg ends up in a duck nest oh. and they hatch and all the ducks laugh because they think, oh, you're so ugly because it <laughs> looks so different. But then it grows up to be this beautiful goose. And then I guess they're all friends at the end. I can't remember. I think it was a happy ending, but that's different than if you got a velociraptor and it grows up to eat them. That's true. But they, they didn't mention the possibility that it could be some sort of happenstance, happy accident that mm -hmm. happened. I suppose it could have rolled over and moved either just before or after fossilization and, you know, be completely unassociated. The authors did point out, though, a couple other examples. The oviraptors could have eaten the dromaeosaurs or brought them back like fragments of dromaeosaurs mm. for their young in one fashion or another. Although there is egg that's sort of stuck to the velociraptor. So it, even though they're not preserved in an egg as well as the one we were discussing earlier, it looks like they were in an egg very recently, at the very least, if not, you know, currently in an egg that got squished during fossilization or something. Or from my perspective, it could be that the nest was being reused because we don't know when exactly these different animals died. And it's possible because animals do this all the time today, where they'll reuse the same nesting area, not necessarily the exact same species of animal. Mm -hmm. It's useful. Like when there are holes dug in the ground, all sorts of things will show up and use that hole in the ground for their house. Yeah. This could happen with a nest and maybe a dromaeosaur had laid an egg there and the young didn't make it for whatever reason. And then an oviraptor showed up later and reused the nest. So there were you know, some bones mixed in. But it'd be kind of surprising that it would have kept that, it wouldn't have cleaned out the nest beforehand. I it depends, right? It depends how deep buried it is or like, mm. if it's just bones sitting there, would you? I don't know. Yeah, I, guess I mean, so. if it was like rotting meat, then you might want to get it out of there. But if it's just some bones, who knows? Maybe they thought it made it look nice. You know how birds do weird decorations sometimes. True. <laughs> One last piece though, that is maybe still out there in terms of oviraptors not having their name fully cleared, and this comes up occasionally in dinosaur media, is that we're still not sure what oviraptorids did eat. So we can't be certain that they didn't sometimes eat eggs. We can be pretty confident that they weren't egg-eating specialists because there's just no evidence of that, and that's a really niche thing that we don't know of animals really doing. But we've never found gut contents or anything, so we don't know what they ate. 
the best we can do is compare their skulls to modern animals and try to guess based on the features of their skull and their jaws and their lack of teeth what other animals eat that have that same sort of arrangement. In this case, it's problematic because they have a parrot-like beak in the lower jaw, but the upper jaw is apparently more like a turtle. So they have this weird combination of features and parrots are almost exclusively herbivorous, whereas turtles are sometimes carnivores, sometimes herbivores, and sometimes omnivores. So being like a turtle doesn't really help <laughs> much in the explanation. Then combining that with a parrot makes it even more confusing. So if you read different articles about oviraptors, usually what they'll say is they were probably omnivores just because it looks like maybe they had a generalized diet but they could have been herbivores or they could have been carnivores. We really don't know. Or it could have been different depending on where they lived. Like maybe even different groups of oviraptors had different behavior. I should also point out the idea of their jaws as crushing specialists gets brought up periodically. And people like to point out, including scientists, that could be crushing nuts and seeds as an herbivore, or it could be crushing eggs and mollusks as a carnivore. So it's possible that their jaws were good and useful for crushing and breaking open eggs. But there's so many ways to break open eggs. They're like, yep. they're very easy and accessible food for lots of animals. You don't necessarily need a specialized jaw in order to That's eat That's why eggs. they're popular. Exactly. Everything, like even rats, like today will like find an egg and break it open. They don't have any specialized <laughs> egg eating tools. They just find a way. All these animals do. Life finds a way. Yeah. Egg eaters find a way too. <laughs> so in general, oviraptors misclassified as egg thieves, but we still don't really know what they ate. Could have been eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like every animal, when it gets a chance, eats an egg. Yeah, it is an easy meal. You don't pass up easy meals. Speaking of eggs, maybe we'll have eggs for dinner. Okay. <laughs> All this talk. hungry. A little bit. <laughs> And I'm really suggestible when it comes to food. <laughs> that is not where I was going. I'm thinking about these poor dinosaurs being eaten. <laughs> Did not make me hungry. <laughs> Those eggs would have been a lot harder to crack than the eggs we have too. Much thicker. Yeah. And you you would only need one, that's for sure. Be like a dozen eggs worth in one single egg. Oh yeah, that'd be too much egg for a human. For most humans. It's true. When I was a teenager, I used to eat a dozen eggs. Hmm. All right, Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our growing community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.